Welcome to the Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. This is a regular podcast where we can travel together across the haunting battlefields of the Great War, from Flanders to the Somme and beyond. So what's in this week's episode? Hello and welcome back to the Old Front Line. This week we're going to look at the subject of battlefield archaeology, what lies beneath the Western Front, in many respects the last witness of the First World War, discuss a First World War object that is a piece of archaeology and take a walk into Essex Farm dressing station bunkers near Ypres. Over the years of working as a battlefield guide with Ledger Holidays, I've been lucky to get to know many people on the battlefields of the First World War. And back in the early 2000s, one of my friends, Jackie Plato, was not just a member of the Last Post Association, he was also a member of the Diggers, which was a group of amateur battlefield archaeologists. Now, at this stage, there were no professional archaeologists really doing any serious work on the battlefields of the First World War. It had not as yet really attracted their attention. So there were a number of groups like the diggers who were carrying out rescue archaeology work at different locations along the Western Front. Significantly with the diggers, this was a massive project because they were extending an industrial estate out northwards from Ypres along the Issa Canal, the old medieval canal which had once been used to ship cloth in in medieval times when Ypres was the centre of the European cloth trade. At the time of the First World War, the canal straddled the frontline area and to the north, near to the village of uh, Bozinger, or Bozingi as the British troops called it, it actually became part of the front line with us on one side of the canal and the Germans on the other. And it crossed the canal at a bend going across some fields towards the Pilkelm Ridge and it was here that the diggers were carrying out a lot of their work around International Trench and Yorkshire Trench, two frontline positions on this part of the battlefield. They put together an incredible exhibition of some of the artefacts that they'd found that was on display in the old school in Bozinger uh, that summer. And a BBC um, producer, John Hayes Fisher, went to this and realised the potential of this to be a documentary for Meet the Ancestors, which was then BBC's rival archaeology show to Time Team. So in the summer of 2001, they began to follow the work of the diggers, and I was very lucky to be invited to follow it with them uh, and ended up being part of Forgotten Battlefield, a documentary that John made for Meet the Ancestors in 2002. Now, there are many, many stories connected with this, and no doubt we'll come back to some of these in in future podcasts. But the one that stays with me in particular was the discovery of the remains of two Royal Welsh Fusiliers close to International Trench. Now, the diggers had carried out a lot of work uh, on frontline and in no-man's-land areas uh, and had found bodies, found remains of soldiers from the First World War, mainly from the early war period in particular, 1915. They had not as yet found any soldiers, British soldiers, that they'd been able to identify. But then they discovered 
a steel helmet, and under that steel helmet was the remains of a soldier. And John and his team moved in to film this archaeological work, recovery work by the diggers, and film it really uh, live. I think we were there for something like eight and a half hours in the end, watching them uncover the remains of these soldiers. Initially, they thought there was just one there. But when they began to remove the earth and clean it back, they discovered some feet above his head, which indicated the remains of another soldier. And essentially what we were looking at here was the zig and the zag of a trench. It was the bend of a trench, probably a sap, a forward trench going out from the front line out into no man's land. And these men were lying on the floor of it, facing roughly downwards. At the end of the sap, uh, the diggers found a steel sheet with a loophole in it. So this was an armoured loophole, really, to enable these men uh, to look out more safely into no man's land. Again, reinforcing the idea that this was an observation sap for men to crawl into to get a view of the German trenches. The bodies were skeletal, um, but with them were the f- was the full equipment carried by these men. No weapons, which again would not be unusual for men crawling forward into a sap to observe. They did both have their equipment on, one webbing and the other one uh, 1914 pattern leather equipment. The first soldier that it found was younger. Uh, the second one was a little bit older. He had false teeth. Um, both of them were wearing their gas mask, which when we were looking at this and commented on it, it was quite apparent that this had obviously, this incident that had led to their deaths had taken part during a gas attack. And the the soldier who was at the far end of the of the sap had his arms slightly clasped together. And when they pulled back um, part of this to clean it, underneath was the remains of one of his identity discs, a private purchase aluminium disc, not the standard dog tags that were worn around the neck of a soldier. These don't survive that long in the ground, but this was an aluminium tag privately purchased, worn round his wrist. I'll put a picture of one of these up on the, the Twitter feed so you can see what I'm talking about. We'll come back to that in a minute. But during the excavation, they, they found with these men not just their military equipment, but their their personal effects as well. And the older soldier at the far end of the sap had a very, very ornate snuff box, a Victorian snuff box with almost like an art deco lid to it. And the snuff was incredibly still inside. There was also the remains of a little leather wallet, which was his, his purse, basically, with his coins in. And there were British coins and there were French silver francs and he'd kept those as a souvenir one for every year of the war that he'd participated in so there was one for 1914 probably indicating that he was an original volunteer there was one for 1915 16 and 17 and that gave us a bit of a clue to the potential time frame of when these men may have died now the regimental insignia with them was the shoulder titles of the Royal Welsh Fusiliers. But we found in both cases, both men had their cap badge in their left tunic pocket or where that would have been. So there was the cap badge of the Royal Welsh Fusiliers there as well, further reinforcing which regiment it was. And we knew that these were men likely to be part of the 38th Welsh Division, uh, which was a 
Kitchener's Army Division and Volunteer Division formed in 1914 uh, of recruits from Wales that had fought on the Somme at Mamet's Ward in 1916 and then had moved up to Ypres and occupied this canal bank sector north of Ypres along the Isa Canal in the six months or so leading up to the Third Battle of Ypres in 1917. So this immediately made us think that these were men killed sometime in that time frame from early 1917, from about the time of the minting of this 1917 coin, up to possibly even including uh, the actual attack on the 31st of July 1917. So we were hopeful possibly that these men might be identified, particularly with the discovery of the identity disc. Now the policy for the retrieval of human remains at that particular time uh, was a little bit grey to say the least um, and for the diggers when they found artefacts with a body initially they were handed over to the Belgian police. The Belgian police then hung on to these artefacts to keep them safe and they were then transferred to the care of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission to help in the identification process prior to reburial. But nothing, unfortunately, was stored in a proper way. Now, this is no criticism of the police or the commission or anyone, really. It was in its infancy battlefield archaeology then, and, and mistakes by everyone uh, were made, mistakes that are no longer happening, I'm pleased to say, on the battlefields now. Um, so what it meant was this very fragile identity disc um, where you couldn't quite read with the naked eye any of the details, but with a bit of sonic cleaning or or other process, the details almost certainly would have been able to be extracted from it. By the time it was stored and then moved on, sadly it had deteriorated to the point where it was just dust. So despite looking through battalion war diaries, and despite uh, looking at soldiers died and, and various other sources to try and work out who these men may have been, it just wasn't possible. Um, and the diggers were upset with this because they had hoped with these later burials and with the discovery of this identity disc that they may have identified who these men were. Now, although they remained unknown, they were still afforded a proper burial. These two Royal Welsh Fusiliers, along with many of the other men found by the diggers at Bozinger, were reburied in Cement House Cemetery near Langemark. And they have what is in effect their own little special plot there of men recovered from that battlefield by the diggers. As you come into the cemetery at Cement House, if you go to your left, to the far end, there is a plot at a slightly different angle to the others, and that's where you will find these graves. And the two Royal Welsh Fusiliers are buried as unknown soldiers of the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, so it's very easy to pick out uh, who they are. It was an incredible moment for me because I remember sitting there, it was a summer, it was a very warm summer's evening as they were working on the final stages of the excavation. And I remember thinking and I remember saying to um, Jackie Plateau and Aurel Saku, two of the diggers, that whoever these men's relatives were today, tonight they were sitting at home having their tea and they didn't know that we'd just found there next of kin we really had hoped to finally pass on uh, the story of a loved one who'd fallen in Flanders fields to a family but it, it just wasn't then possible since that time of course archaeology battlefield archaeology has moved on greatly the work that's been done in recent years to recover and identify the dead has really been quite incredible and I've been lucky to work again with many archaeologists 
In 2012, I worked with the incredible archaeologist Simon Verdigam on a project around Messines where his team excavated the battlefield there and did some amazing work. And the current teams that work for the Ministry of Defence to identify the dead have resulted again in the identification of many lost soldiers from the Great War. To me, it's one of the the legacies of the First World War, and, and there are many, that the burial of the dead is not a closed book. The men from this war are still being recovered, still being identified, and families are still finding their lost soldiers from that war. This is the part of the old front line where we look at a First World War object. And I thought to link into the discussion of battlefield archaeology that we've just had in this podcast, I'd um, have a look at this this piece of chalk that I've got in front of me now. Now, I didn't find this myself. Um, my old friend Yves Foucault, who lived in Pozieres, which I had mentioned in the previous podcast, he was the Commonwealth War Graves Commission gardener who had uh, an incredible collection of battlefield artefacts found over many years he had a friend who did a very similar sort of thing walked the fields of the Marne actually in the Champagne battlefields of the First World War near a place called Massige and they used to swap things regularly and, and Eve came back from his friend's house one weekend with a, a little basket of pieces of chalk that had been recovered from a collapsed quarry and uh, this had been an underground quarry where German soldiers had sheltered during the First World War and they'd covered the walls of this quarry in graffiti and prior to its demolition effectively, destruction, clearance, it was uh, accessed by local collectors who picked up some of the fragments uh, and this is one of them and it's a small piece of chalk, Um, it's been decorated by a German soldier, you can just make out der Uh, the in German, and uh, P-A-G-N-E, which is almost certainly Champagne, the last few letters of the word of Champagne. Um, So it's a souvenir of the Champagne, a German soldier uh, in that area. It looks to say October 1917 underneath it. There's a bit of a a laurel wreath on it, Um, and what is like an iron cross, basically. So this is a little artefact, a little bit of archaeology of the First World War, carved by a German soldier in an underground quarry used as a shelter by German troops more than a hundred years ago and is not untypical of many such locations along the Western Front. I've been under the Western Front on quite a few occasions right across different parts of it and the amount of graffiti that exists below ground is quite staggering so this tiny piece of chalk really is, is a reflection of that and there are some safe places where you can go and have a look at this graffiti um, in the tunnels underneath Vimy Ridge. Um, there's another system near Arras, which you can visit on arrangements. Um, and p- pretty much every um, house on the Somme, in, in the back areas of the Somme, um, that has a cellar has this on. I remember going in one uh, in the village of Auchanville uh, on the Somme. Um, not Avril Williams cellar, this is another cellar in the village which was part of a dressing station, and the walls of that were absolutely covered in British names and graffiti from the First World War. So wherever soldiers of the Great War were, they left their mark, whether that's on buildings, underground quarries, in cellars. Uh, And that important, really, archaeology of the First World War helps us tell the story of that war through the men who were there. Sadly, the 
The author, if you like, of this little bit of graffiti remains anonymous. A, a German soldier, Fritz, an unknown soldier of the Great War. But somehow, he speaks for them all. A shorter walk on the battlefields this week. Not so much a walk around somewhere, but a walk into somewhere. We're just outside the city of Ypres in Flanders, alongside the Isar Canal, and we're going into Essex Farm. Now, not Essex Farm, the cemetery. We might come back and have a look at that another day. But the Essex Farm bunkers, which many, many people visit on trips to the battlefields. The Isar Canal was the old medieval canal that used to once ship cloth when Ypres was the centre of the European cloth trade and at the time of the First World War for a, much of its length running north from Ypres it was just behind the British or French front line. The canal bank was raised, this was the spoil from when the canal was originally dug and we tunnelled into it, we had dugouts and gun positions and dressing stations, there were a number of them built in 1915 while the second Battle of Ypres was raging across the canal, up across, beyond, on top of the Pilkelm Ridge. And these early dressing stations and early constructions that were here were timber framed. Uh, the war poet John McRae, who was here with the Canadian Expeditionary Force in May 1915, this is the spot where he wrote the now immortal poem in Flanders Fields. When he was here, this was not a concrete bunker system, it was a wooden structure. In 1916, when it was clear that the front lines were not going to move for a while, uh, the British were very reluctant to build concrete structures in the war. Our policy was largely an offensive one, and bunkers were a defensive technology, really, so we didn't do it as often as the Germans did. But in this sector, when it was clear that the front lines were not going to move for a while, a whole load of infrastructure was put in, of which dressing station bunkers were all a part of that. Uh, there was one down the road at Duhallo, where Duhallo ADS Cemetery is now, and then one constructed here by the Royal Engineers and used and indeed mentioned in the history of the 39th Division Medical Units via Ypres, um, for example. Now, the bunkers that we see to, today, th there's a lot of um, misinformation about these bunkers, a, a lot of misconceptions in many respects. What we're looking here is part of the active section of, of the dressing station, although as you come into the site now on a little cobbled path you go across a little bridge uh, when I first used to come here in the 80s the farmer here didn't really want visitors to these bunkers so he'd flooded the area by tapping off the little beak the stream that runs along here and he would flooded it now that was quite understandable then because very few visitors came here um, I'm sure having these constructions on your your land was a bit of a pain Eventually, the city of Ypres purchased this ground and it's now permanently preserved. But as you come into it now, you go down the slightly little ramped access to the bunker and there's the first uh, area on your right. Now, the roof has moved over the years. This is not so much the result of bombardments, but the natural movement um, of the earth above. But the first section is an officer's mess and this is quite a wide room. And then we come to a narrow one and there are a few of these. The first one was a ward for walking cases. So when men walking wounded brought back from the frontline area towards the Pilkelm Ridge, there were bridges across the canal, which is at the back of where this bunker is, so you could easily get across. The walking wounded would come in with slight wounds that possibly could be patched up here and they could then be returned to unit or if they were more serious, 
wounds, they'd be sent off to um, a casualty clearing station where their wounds could be properly dressed and treated. But for many of these men, um, they didn't require stretchers, which is why there's not a lot of space in there. You could treat them standing up. There's thick walls, the bunker protects them, um, and this serves its purpose. Coming out and moving to the next room, which is wide again, this is where stretcher cases were brought. And the idea was the bunker would obviously give them some protection as to what was going on outside with bombardments or gas attacks. And if you look at all of the entrances to this, you'll see a slightly triangular-shaped, angled section of concrete. Um, and if you look to the top of it, there's a little indent uh, above the door frame, uh, and that's where a rolled-up gas blanket would have been. And the angled entrances were runners, basically, for the gas blanket to be pulled down very rapidly to seal the bunker off to make it semi, or if not totally, gas-proof to, to what was going on outside. So this was a stretcher cases area. The next uh, narrow section of the, of the bunker um, was latrines. Men need to go to the toilet, um, and that facility was, uh, was put in there. And then it moves on to a wider room again, which was a, a dressing room where wounds could be dressed and cleaned. Men would come from the front line absolutely filthy. Uh, wounds infected with soil and detritus were obviously the ones that could get more serious because bacteria, uh, potentially fatal infection would build up uh, and these men could die of their wounds. The next little narrow area is... A, a mess kitchen area where food could be prepared for the not just the potentially the patients that were there although rarely they would be here long enough to be fed but more likely for the medical officers and the Royal Army Medical Corps orderlies that were working um, in the dressing station and then the final room at the far end that is for men awaiting evacuation because the whole process here this was part of what we now call a triage process where men were brought in, their wounds were cleaned, assessed, redressed, and then it was then decided what they would do with them. Did they Could they be treated here and then returned to their battalion, or did they require movement on to the next medical facility, in this case a casualty clearing station? Where you pull up now in your car or in your coach or your minibus, um, there was like a little cab rank of ambulances waiting there to take men to the CCS, the casualty clearing station. Sometimes these were horse-drawn ambulances, sometimes they were motorised ambulances. And the road almost directly opposite that is the route they took uh, towards places like Elverdingo or even further afield to the casualty clearing stations that were, uh, that were in that area. So Essex Farm was part of that vital link in the medical evacuation chain. From the front line where the battalion medical officer and the stretcher bearers have a regimental aid post to pick up the wounded there, they would then evacuate the wounded to a dressing station like this for treatment here for reassessment and then the dressing station uh, here at Essex Farm would then move these men onto a casualty clearing station for further treatment there and then beyond that there were base hospitals general hospitals on the coast and beyond that of course blighty Britain itself so the bunker really it's an important part of our understanding of the, of the medical side of the first world war it, it is in itself a piece of battlefield archaeology a survivor of the great war and it's great that it's now preserved and accessible and well worth a visit if you go there. It was a major 
attraction, if that's the word, or certainly of interest to battlefield tourists in the immediate post-war period, in the interwar period. Uh, and you see this with the amount of graffiti that is on the walls in there of people that visited during that time, having left their name and sometimes their address and the unit they were with. So when we visit today, we're not the first visitors here, um, aside from the men who served here, veterans, families who returned in that interwar period came here in great numbers. That Great War pilgrimage to sites like this continues. That's it for another episode of The Old Frontline. I hope you found this week's content of interest. What I'll do as I did with the whistle last week, don't worry, I'm not about to blow it again, uh, I'll put some pictures up on Twitter. I'll start a little thread with some associated images connected to what we've looked at during the course of this week's podcast. So we'll have a photograph from the archaeology that the diggers did at Bozinger, um, an image of the, um, the little bit of uh, chalk the German soldier had carved from the champagne, and some photographs that I've got, some wartime and just post-war ones of Essex Farm and a plan of the dressing station so you can see what the layout of it was uh, during the, the war. They'll be on my Twitter feed at Somcor uh, under the hashtag Old Frontline. Next week, we're going to return to the Somme for a much longer battlefield walk where we're going to go from the village of Oceanville, Ocean Villas, up the old Beaumont Road and onto the Hawthorne Ridge in front of the Hawthorne Mine Crater. And we'll look at the two ends of the Battle of the Somme in that area, the 1st of July and the 13th of November, and visit one of the smaller comrade cemeteries of the Somme, Hawthorne Ridge Number 1. So that's next week. See you then. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. If you've enjoyed this podcast, do take time to subscribe, follow me on Twitter at Somcore, and tell us what you think using the hashtag Old Front Line. I look forward to seeing you again along the old front line.